0: Dos, uno, on tres, 3 Don
1: I think maybe that's your cue What we're going
2: to do right here is go back.
0: Way back. Back into time.
3: FM, WCOMLD, Chapel Hill.
4: I want your love, get yeah, I need your love, but I want your so. Now you dance my rhythm, honey, and I'll yours. So your all it's up to you, get satisfied.
5: FM WCOMLP Chapel Hill Carborough it's the
4: dance mega mix
5: and I'm your host Don play bringing you two hours of non-stop dance music all mixed on wax oh but wait tonight we have a very special treat we're not just gonna play two hours of dance music we're gonna play 30 minutes of dance music and then we are going to speak with Tony Zioli. AKA DJ Tony Z, who will be joining me this Saturday night at the Nightlight in Chapel Hill for Simply Paradise Rhythm is a Dancer edition focused on Eurodance. You are not gonna wanna miss this interview. Tony and I get into the history of Eurodance, the Euro scene in Boston, and what that craziness was like for him. So keep your radio locked right here. It's the Dance Megamix on 103.5 FM. WCOM LP, Chapel Hill, Carborough. It's the Elastic Band running up that hill. You'll hear about this track and a bunch of others in the interview I have with DJ Tony Zioli coming up in just a few minutes. So keep your radio locked right here. You do not want to miss this. Right here on your home for community radio, WCO. 103.5 FM WCOMLP, Chapel Hill, Carboro. This is the Dance Mega Mix. I'm Don Play, and I am very excited because joining me here on the program today is Tony Zioli, who will be headlining a DJ night with me at the Nightlight in Chapel Hill on March 19th, entitled Simply Paradise, Rhythm is a Dancer. Now, Tony is a man of many talents, and it's hard to summarize his resume in one breath, but I'm going to give it my best shot. So here we go. Tony is a tech entrepreneur and software developer based in Asheville. He's a digital media executive, the founder of the Asheville House Music Society, a former Chapel Hill resident himself, a former Billboard dance chart reporter and winter music conference panelist, the former head of sales for Megamix DJ Remix service out of Boston, the former A&R head of X-Mix Productions, a dot-com crash survivor, a former member of the Boston record pool... But above all else, at least for the purposes of this broadcast, one of the preeminent DJs from Boston's thriving Euro scene of the 1990s. Tony Zioli, welcome to the Dance Megamix.
6: All right. It's so great to be here. And it's so amazing to talk about that era. This is really the first time that I've been able to do that in almost 30 years, you know, since since that era kind of waned. Well, I wouldn't say 30 years. I mean, when I left Boston, it was 1996 for New York City and it was still going strong, uh, but the trance movement was coming, you know, the Euro dance was leaving and trance was coming in, you know, with Paul Van Dyke and Sasha and Digweed and all those characters. And so, yeah, this is really an exciting uh, moment for me to relive this history. So thanks for bringing me on.
5: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining. So. I'm ecstatic. I'm really looking forward to this event at the Nightlight on the nineteenth. For everyone who's tuning in, just explain, set the table. What is Eurodance or Euro music?
6: Well, in my interpretation and definition, Eurodance music is music that was created by producers out of uh, the European, you know, zone today, uh, which consists of the UK. Belgium, the Netherlands, Amsterdam, Sweden, uh, mostly mostly Sweden, um, and, uh, and Italy. Uh, so you had a lot of uh, producers uh, after kind of this Ibiza movement, Ibiza, Ibiza, however you want to pronounce it, um, of this Balearic sound. And then it, it became this kind of stomping piano house, and then it became this synthesizer-driven Kind of, you know, big dance feel with some some rap kind of combined into it, but a lot of great vocals. And then there were a lot, a lot of uh, remixes, like um, Elastic Band Running Up That Hill, which is an old Kate, I think Kate Bush record. Um,
5: I mean, there's a lot of covers. I Abba, think of like you know
6: Abba Dancing Queen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of covers. So uh, what happened was. In my area in Boston, where I lived in Alston Brighton, that was where Boston University, you know, right where Boston University is. And then you have Northeastern across town, you have Harvard University MIT, and MIT, but it was really BU and Northeastern um, that really drove the international college crowd into the clubs in the Boston area uh, from the, you know, right around the early, early 90s Um, you know, throughout when I left in 96. So it was a good six year span of me recognizing, realizing and having friends uh, or making friends with uh, a group of college students who were either promoters or were just students going to these promoted club nights. And what would happen is these students would bring back music from around the world. And they'd ask us to play that music at the clubs. They'd give us CDs or uh, there were vinyl shops in the Boston area like Boston Beat or Vinyl Connection, uh, Carol Mitchell's Vinyl Connection, which was where I preferred to shop, uh, that, that had import dance music. And so while I could, and I was a Billboard Dance Chart reporter, while I could get my records for free from the, from the promoters promoting to the Billboard Dance Chart, I really gravitated towards a lot of this European dance music coming over on import and it was expensive. I mean $9.99, dollars $9.99 for a piece of vinyl as opposed to uh, $2.99, dollars dollars for a piece of domestic vinyl uh, because they had to import taxes and all these kinds of things. Um, and so uh, these clubs in Boston, these promoters, uh, uh, they came from, like I said, all over the world. One, my friend Christoph Mueller, He was a promoter uh and he's really now still owner of uh one of the major nightclubs uh in boston he lives in florida but he goes back and forth he he has his friend manos and hussein they were a major promotion team uh in the boston area and then there were clubs like m80 there were uh there were there was um the roxy of course there was europa there was hub club um a lot of these clubs you know started catering uh, to the international audience, especially M-80 in Paradise on Commonwealth Avenue. M-80 was really the place where you would go on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights to hear this kind of music being played. And Euro dance music really extends not just to European dance music, but there were records, you know, out of, you could talk, talk about salsa merengue, you could talk about Arabic music, you could talk about Indian music like Apache Indian was a a big um, Indian hip-hop artist that I used to play. Or you could play Greek, traditional Greek uh, line dancing songs (laughs) or, um, you know, music from... uh, There was Yaki Yaki Morikanti was another record. Uh, Rashid Taha was another artist that we might have played from Morocco. So Eurodance in its if you look on billboard to like billboard or, or any chart you know it's really focused on those big hits from the european market but it really in my mind spread out around the world because people brought it into the euro clubs and we called everyone euro even though they might have been from brazil or you know from hungary or something like that you know outside of the european market uh, or india or australia um, because some of these records like ace of Base. You know, uh, they ex- they extended around the world. ABBA, you know, you could get any of this music a- anywhere around the world. And Eurodance didn't necessarily have to be, you know, 128, 132 beats per minute. It is high-energy dance music. Um, it could also be down-tempo, uh, as down-tempo as Papa Winnie, You Are My Sunshine, which is a, uh, a big kind of reggae record that was huge, and you'd play that every night at the club, at the, at the closing, you'd play Papa Winnie, You Are My Sunshine, and everyone would sing the song. Um, you know, the, the, the Arabs in one corner, you know, the Eastern Europeans in the other corner, the South Americans in another corner, they'd all be singing to, you know, Papa Winnie, You Are My Sunshine, My Only Sunshine, You Make Me Happy, When Skies Are Gray, and they'd, they, it would just end every night. So that's what Euro music means to me uh encapsulating and all that you know there's the house scene and then there's the hip-hop scene and some of those records might have filtered in like i like to move it by uh eric morello uh or some or you know records like that or twilight zone which was kind of a rave record uh those would filter in but really truly the traditional um euro dances um you know rhythm is a dancer snap Rosala, everybody's free some of these big records. And like I said, they were born out of Italo Disco, uh, as well as Balearic, um, and they were pre trance. So it was that era right before that. Dirty Cash by Stevie V, Pump Up the Jam" by Technotronic. Um, even though those released Dirty Cash and Pump Up the Jam" were released domestically here in the US, they still emanated um, from the European market. So I think but, that gives you a good idea.
5: Yeah, that, that's amazing. I mean, I think, I think the biggest misconception is that it's music made in Europe for people from Europe, but that really wasn't the case in Boston. It was really kind of synonymous with the international
6: scene. International and the, scene
5: yeah. Yeah, and the international market. So, mm-hmm. so Boston was a hotbed for the kind of Euro scene, as we call it. Um, was it unique? It doesn't seem like there were too many other places in the country where you could do this, where you had this influx of students and young people.
6: Uh, it, it was very unique in the sense that there, were a, there was a lot of focus on it. And, uh, and because of the big colleges in Northeastern and BU being right there downtown, those kids could roll out you know, after, you know, get some dinner out and be in a club by 11 o'clock, 11.30. You'd have Avalon down, uh, you know, Metro turned to Avalon. You'd have um, uh, Venus to Milo you'd have Axis, you know, all those clubs on Lansdowne Street, you'd have M80, you'd have Europa. Um, So it was a big market. It was a big international community coming into the city. You did have it in New York City at Obar. Uh, There was a club called Obar, um, which a friend of mine DJed at, and I got the pleasure to play there a couple of times, and it was very much similar. But it wasn't, you, you know, New York was underground. You had Junior Vasquez and you had, uh, you know Danny Tanaglia and you had Jonathan Peters and Victor Calderon and you, the Roxy and Twilo, you know, Twilo came up later, but you had Sound Factory, um, you know, Expo, all these clubs, USA, Limelight, they were really focused on house and and techno and and beginning and trance. They weren't necessarily focused on Eurodance. Um there may have been some clubs that I'm unaware of and you know as I transitioned to New York. Uh, But mostly my New York forays were in the house music scene. So uh, there was also a few clubs in Washington, D.C., being a big uh, international relations community and scene. Um, The kids from Georgetown, University would go. uh, And so you did have it. in. I would meet some people and say, oh, you know, there's a club in Georgetown. You know, there's a club in uh, D.C., you know, that's doing that's doing this, too. But it wasn't I just don't know that it, it was as impactful and as long running and as big as the scene in Boston. My understanding had, was that you oh, had sorry. it in Miami a, a little bit in Miami too.
5: Yeah, my my understanding was that it was DC and Miami and Boston but mm-hmm. um I, yeah, I was curious if there's anything beyond that. It sounds it sounds like that was that was kind of where it was
6: at. Yeah. So Obar Obar was definitely like that was that was like that was the place. Like you had the money crowd and it was very nice. I don't know if you've ever, ever been to Lockobers, Yvonne's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in Yvonne's, where I, I used to DJ in Yvonne's, that that looked like Bo bar. Okay. So it was that kind of upscale, beautiful, uh, you know, not a club-looking environment, but like uh, kind of like, um, a, 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 I don't know, like somebody's living room in a mansion, okay. right? <laughs> Yeah. So Obar was like that.
5: Okay, yeah, and and I think that's worth mentioning too, right? So, I guess the clubs in Boston, many of them, um, the ones at least that I've been in, I know the the insides, the interiors weren't so luxe, but the the clientele and the atmosphere, mm-hmm. this was a pretty upmarket venture, right? Mm-hmm. And what what was that like? And what were some of the challenges that you faced in, in dealing with the high end clientele?
6: Um, privilege. I want it now, you know, here's throwing money at you, you know. Um, You know, it it was, it's hard to be, I grew up in a housing development in Boston um, called Charlesview Apartments that was built uh, by the church and state. It was a, it was a a collaboration and it was built in 1970. It was brand new. And my parents uh, were very working class. They didn't go to college. And when I was doing all this, I was living in a um a rent-controlled apartment in Brookline, Massachusetts. Um my rent was like, I don't know, 280 or 290 a month for a three-bedroom. Um, and so I was fortunate to have those things, but I didn't come from the same wealth. Uh, you know, I knew two kids. One was drive a Rolls Royce to school and the other would drive a Jaguar. And they lived in a, a a duplex penthouse apartment on like the 40th floor in downtown Boston. (laughs) And, and so, you know, connecting with these people as friends, I had a friend, um, Caroline Lloyd, who became a big fan of mine. And I love Caroline. She was an awesome person musically, um, maybe detached a little bit from well detached from my world. And we maintained a friendship over music and over love of DJing and dance music culture, but we didn't really have anything in common outside of that. You know, she was doing equestrian, her family owned art galleries. As a matter of fact, her father was the one who discovered Rothko and they have the marble art galleries around the world. And, you know, she invited me, you know, to stay at her four story uh, mansion on park avenue you know in, in the 70s and you know she had and so i stayed in the in this guest suite upstairs so this is just you know she was driving a bmw i was driving like a 79 camaro <laughs> you know it, it was very very it, it just was a very different world and that's probably why i began to lose gigs in the 94 because i wasn't euro enough my name wasn't you know, I wasn't speaking Spanish, I wasn't Ita- I, I'm Italian, but I didn't play off Tony Zioli. I called myself DJ Tony Z, like any DJ would in the 80s in Boston as you come up, you know, you're just the local DJ. And then Manny Ferreros, who's DJ Manolo, you know, he was just Manny and I hired him at uh, Megamix. And then, uh, you know, in the 1989, 1990, we worked together. And he was DJing at Faneuil Hall, just playing top forty uh, music, and he, you know, on all the remix services or whatever's on the radio. And all of a sudden, overnight, he becomes DJ Manolo, and he's speaking Spanish to the crowd. And, and even now, he's going back to Boston because some people remember him there, and that's great. I'm so happy for him. But that was the transition. That was the difficulty for me. And while the, you know, while Christoph Manos and Hussein tried to keep me working um, at Mercury Bar. Uh, my gig started you know, getting few and far between and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So that's why I moved to New York is that I just felt like maybe my time is up here and I need to go somewhere else. So that, 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 that represented the difficulty and the challenges. Um, you know, but while it was going on, it was just super fun. Like it was probably the most fun I've ever had in my lifetime. Uh, DJing to you know at the Roxy. I don't know if you knew this, but I booked. Um, I brought Dr. Alban to the Roxy, um, and and it was the biggest night they ever had. Uh, they put over three thousand people through the doors in a place that only holds supposedly nineteen hundred, <laughs> and it was incredible. Like that night was Dr. Alban's first appearance in America ever. Um, I got him here, and the guys paid him, which is great. And it was the biggest night. I mean, I opened for, for a lot of artists like Parliament Funkadelic and other artists at the Roxy, but that night was just huge. So, yeah, there was some great times, but then like the challenges and the friendships and the financial t- difference between me and those people. You know, I'd go down to Newberry Street and I'd eat at a Armani Cafe and I'd see people and they'd come and hang and we'd do that hang thing. But after that, you know, I wasn't, li- I wasn't. In in it with them, yeah. right? I wasn't going to school with them, I wasn't part of their culture, so you know that's what separated me. I was kind of like an intruder in this life, and somehow I became well versed in it and was able to succeed in it for as long as I did. But then it really got um, identity, you know, identity politics, like who that DJ needs to like Tassos and and Ricos um were greek and they because they were greek and ricos drove a harley the school you know and he had his record bags and his back yeah. you know harley cases and tassos was from greece and he knew mykonos and played all the greek music you know those they had a, they were in, embedded in the culture and i wasn't so so that's that's what made it a little bit more difficult for yeah. me
5: and I mean, I, th- I think that's, you bring up a lot of interesting stuff there, but I, I think that's part of it, right? This is the 90s. It was kind of like the beginning of globalization as we know it today. Mm-hmm. And people were looking for an escape or, you know, like tr- being transported to someplace where they maybe had never been or missed. Maybe it was their home and they wanted to go back there for a night. And I, I think that gets lost today because it's so easy to, you know, to go to <laughs> Mykonos, I think, um, if you have the means to do it. It's just a lot. It's a lot more accessible to folks these days, but you know, I I think your point about Lansdowne—I mean, Lansdowne Street—but Newbury Street is really interesting as well. So, for folks not from Boston, you know, Newbury Street was is is still the highest per square foot retail, um, like the most expensive street in the city to have a retail store. It's where all the high end shops are, and on one end, it's bookended by the Ritz Carlton. At the other end, it used to be bookended by Tower Records, and. Mm -hmm. When you were on the the Ritz Carlton side, it was very upmarket and the Armani Cafe was right there. And and for me, that was kind of like Ground zero of the Euro scene in Boston.
6: Oh, yeah. I get my Caesar salad, my chicken Caesar with my bottle of Pellegrino. And I felt like, you know, I was chilling with my calamari. (laughs) That's right.
5: And then and then at the other end, you know, as you went down, there were clothing stores, but then there were all the best record stores in Boston, maybe um, aside from Carol's store, were basically on Newbury Street. And so Mm -hmm. you got a mixture of kind of like people like me who were more like the house and rave kids who would be, you know, bumping shoulders with these folks. And then you know you go all the way down to like the Sansi Cafe, which I think is still there, mm-hmm. where there'd be some shirtless guy who looked like Fabio painting uh, oil yeah. canvases in the middle of the day. And you know I'd be just trying to scoop by and get over to Satellite and pick up some some breakbeat or whatever. So right,
6: it was a wild and time. We all shopped at Newberry Comics. I mean, you know, Rude Boy was the uh, I don't know if the yeah, of you know, mm-hmm. yeah Sean Sweeney. I mean, that was an incredible uh, place to buy house music, and Sean. Outside of the Euro dance scene, Sean was leading the house scene at Access on Tuesdays, and that was the joint. That was the spot to be in the Loft, of course. And you know, it's funny because I DJed at the Loft um, probably over hundred times, but I didn't. I only DJed downstairs a few times. We had a Euro dance night at the Loft on Fridays after Europa uh, at the Loft uh, upstairs. And so I, you know, I would pack up my records from Europa and run down to the loft at 2.30 and then DJ till, you know, 4.35 in the morning. That's amazing. I got to
5: let the listeners know. So if you don't know about the loft, the loft is, it's a different loft than David Mancuso's loft in New York, but we're talking about Boston's after hour spot. That was, that was, it was underage club as well, right? It was,
6: well, it wasn't a, it, it was. It was a converted. It was an old um, horse barn. That's right for the, for the fire for the fire firehouse. I guess for firefighters, and the horse barn you know had a second floor and a third floor and an uh, and an upstairs outdoor. It was uh, no alcohol, and there was no so there was no age. Yeah. There was no age there because it was no. It wasn't a club like you would go and buy alcohol. You had to bring your own. It was a dancing um, venue. Yeah, it was a dancing venue, and it was the only place in the city that historically had a license to stay open as a you know community gathering club until six in the morning or whatever that's right
5: because and in boston everything closes at 2 a.m and yeah. yeah and and so if you don't know the loft it's also where um dj bruno probably boston's like longest tenured uh oh, dj yeah. really made his bones and built a huge fan, uh, fan base which still exists in boston today mm-hmm. in the deep house scene um and also uh, a young armand van helden um mm-hmm. was playing there and i don't know if we'll have time to get to armand today and your work at xmix um but we can talk about that maybe next time if you'll if you'll come back yeah, um, sure but yeah and and also i should mention the dope jams guys so um uh paul and francis who ran a store in new york called dope jams um you know they they got their start there at the loft so a lot of a lot of history and in, in, in these places that you went yeah so you know thinking about um just staying on Eurodance, right before we go back to to your decision to move to New York. So one thing I'm really curious about is the kind of like worldview and ethos of Eurodance. This is something that's not talked about ever, and I wanted to get your perspective. Like, did you think that the music separating the clubs had a particular outlook or perspective that was different?
6: Yeah, I mean, it. You know, it wasn't as it wasn't as hard and gritty as music from America at the time. Um, I mean, even you can look at, I like to move it, right? I like to move it, move it, you know? And, uh, you know, Dr. Albon could be, you know, compared to, uh, to, to Real to Real and the Mad Stuntman, right? In the same vein, right? But he came up with, it's my life. Exactly. i hallelujah, right? And so while he had that raspy voice, it was still more along the lines of talking about, you know, who you want to be celebration uh, uplifting where New York, where sounds coming out of New York were always more gritty and, and harder. And, and, you know, it's just, like you said, a different ethos, a di- because it's a different way of life in Europe than it is, than it is in America. It's a different, it's it just so many different inputs and outputs to character building and, and what we learn about each other and education and where people come from. Um, you know That's what I think is the, is the distinction. Um, like I was mentioning this before we got on the call, this song by Joy Salinas called Rock and Romance. You know, um, you know th- that song, um, People Hold On by Cold Cut, um, all beautifully sung, Rosala, everybody's free. I mean, everybody's free to feel good, right? Would you really expect that song to come out of New York? You know, no, right? It's, you know, it's underground, it's gritty, it's dirty, right? And, and coming from Europe is this great dance record that's uplifting and, you know, and future-filled. And so I think, you know, these people that came from those areas, you know, they wanted the party. They wanted to dance. They wanted to have fun and have a good time and sing along to these songs where coming out of the New York underground, you know, you had a Victor Calderon or star 69 records that were more, you know, more darker, right. You couldn't really sing along to them. Right. Um, you know, I mean, you had good life inner city, those Detroit techno records, there was a lot of vocal house, uh, you know, You Don't Know Me by Armand and, 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 and Flowers um, with Armand and Roland Clark. So, yeah, those records are beautiful records in the house world, but they don't transcend in a party type of, you know, they're serious dance records, right? You're, you can have good time to them, but they're not a hold your drink in the air and hug your girlfriend or your, your, your date record or you, know, or, you know, have this group of 20 in the corner you know, with Bottle Service, just not those kind of records. Um, Because I went to Cielo a lot, you know, and there was Bottle Service and people were dancing, but they weren't singing It's My Life, you know, or Everybody's Free, right? They weren't belting out at the top of their lungs, this music. So I think that's the different ethos, um, you know, that comes over. And I've been to Amsterdam, I've been to London, um, but unfortunately I haven't spent as much time there as other DJs that I would have liked, or even a Ibiza during that time. So I don't know, I don't know the culture as well, and I was just getting that vibe from the people who brought it here, and that's what opened me up to globalization. Plus, my work at x you know, was truly global. I was selling records all over the world, talking to people in Japan and and in Australia, and even in Moscow and other places. So. You know, I was open to that. I was open to meeting those people and hearing from them. And so I did. And, and, and that's what helped me see the world as a, as a much bigger place. Wonderful.
5: So here's my here's the million dollar question for me. And I don't think anyone's ever asked this. If I this. get a million? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, sure. If you can answer this one, this is the question. So okay. all these acts who were producing Eurodance music like Technotronic and Culture Beat, they, they had a lot of success. And yet the DJs who played this music in the clubs never gained their own following nationally the way that people in trance or in the house movement that preceded uh, Eurodance did. Why do you think that was?
6: I think because they weren't making records. You know, they weren't making records like, uh, you know, Sasha and Digweed started making them or you know, Paul Van Dyke or Paul Oakenfold. Like those guys were making records, Paul Van Dyke and Paul Oakenfold were making records through the Balearic era and in through the Eurodance era and and beyond. Or, you know, there were Italian DJs that were making records uh, from Italy. Um, But in in the United States, we didn't yet have, you know, we had like, I know Armand used to work in digital performer and, you know, computers were expensive. At the time and buying digital performer and sitting down to learn it, I think it was, it was still, it was a transition from an era of people making music with keyboards and samplers from Detroit and Chicago and the house music scene. But the Euro DJs were focused, I think, on the market and on playing music. And it was different music from all over the world. There wasn't just one format. Um, While I wanted to produce music, I was so busy, you know, kind of being part of the scene and trying to work and survive that I I didn't have really a chance to make the music. Now, there's a DJ, there's a producer named Lenny Bertaldo, who is out of X-Mix, who kind of could emulate that Euro dance sound in his X-Mix remixes and did a lot of that work for X-Mix. But he wasn't a DJ, um, you know, and it was the New York house music DJs that were making, you know, that were getting known for things. You know, we were bringing in this sound from other places like uh, DJ Lillowell, right? I think that's how you pronounce his yep. name. From yeah, Italy. Black
5: Box. Yeah, that's right.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Black Box, right? So those are the people that became famous. Our scene, you know, this music wasn't spreading out around the world that was coming to us. So we were playing music from other DJs that we, you know, if we made that music from, from where we sat, um, where, who would buy that music and then sell it back to Italy or sell it back to Sweden, right? Um, and we, how would you break those records uh, in those markets first, in, in Paris and, in you know, in those clubs? uh, in the South of France. Right. Um, you know, though that's where people were coming back from and bringing music from like Stonebridge, right. Is a great example with Robin S show me love, you know, he's, he's still, you know, he does serious, uh, XM still, uh, he's got a mixture. He's got, he's still hitting the Billboard dance chart with records even today, you know, from Robin S 30 years ago. So, DJs like that, producers that, that were able to, to export their music to America were the ones who got the gigs. And the DJs in America were the ones that were playing that music but weren't exporting anything back out. Got you know, we, we exported house music, right? We exported house music around the world, New York house music, you know, Little Louis Vega, Todd Terry, Armand, um, you know, Victor Calderon, like I said before, or, or Peter Rohoffer or Junior Vasquez, we were exporting that around the world, but we weren't exporting this type of Italian dance music. And the labels themselves weren't focused on it to buy it. Like, you know, you, you didn't have, well, you had flying records here in America and Logic opened an office here that a woman named Kelly uh, Schwartzberg, I think her last name was, who's had since passed away. She, you know, she ran Logic BMG and they opened an office here. But for the most part, your dance departments here signed like uh, Arista signed the real McCoy, you know, uh, but they weren't signing any artists from America to the other way. I mean, you had like the graduation of like the Latin kind of um, uh, freestyle, you know, with Tony Moran and and those kinds of artists. Um, but they went another way, like um Company B and yep. George Lamond, like that stuff would be considered, I think, kind of like the equivalent, right? The freestyle, mm-hmm. I think, would be the equivalent to Eurodance for the late 80s era, but then it became Eurodance in Boston and Freestyle went away. And those producers, you know, never went, they either went to house music or underground or whatever. So we just never coalesced around. A scene because we couldn't release records to any American domestic labels that were buying that music, and we had import labels opening up offices here to to then take that music, um, uh, and you know like Paul Oakenfold's label was signed uh, by Kinetic, Perfecto was signed by Kinetic, which was part of Warner Music Group. Um, you know, and Logic had B, you know, BMG had Logic here, so they were bringing the music here, and. Yeah, they might sign remixers, but the real producers, plus there's a the culture sound, right? It's the culture of those communities of Sweden and, and to, to have that sound, like you have to live there, right? To really like, you know, be part of that pop culture in that market. I didn't hear Um Blue until I went to Amsterdam dance event and I, I saw it on TV. And you know, Eiffel 65, I think they're called, yep, and that's like right. was produced in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, so Italy. all this, all this sound, it's it's based on sound. It's a based on a culture. It's based on a community. It just we just didn't have that in Boston. You know, the few DJs that were DJing in the Euro dance scene, like myself, you know, we didn't have computers to make music on. I wasn't. I wanted to make music at X Mix, and I. That's one of the reasons why I left x Mixers because I wasn't afforded the opportunity to become a remixer and try to do those things because they were focused on, you know, he was focused on a whole bunch of different stuff. And Oman was, you know, and Lenny were there and, and getting other DJs like Josh Wink and DJ Sneak. So, you know, it, it wasn't, it just wasn't, there was not a focus. Nobody was asking for it, like yeah. make these records and let's try to emulate. And so that's what I, that's why I think it wasn't part of the culture.
5: That's amazing. If that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. I'm you, you, you got it. I, the, the million dollars is here for you. So, that, you know,
6: that, <laughs> Do you think I, that that encapsulates, I mean, do you feel like I, uh, yeah. I, I hit the nail on the head? No, I mean I,
5: the, the import export thing, I think makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, you know, I guess my, I would wonder how much success those producers had as DJs uh, abroad. And that's just something I, I, I don't know, but I'd be curious to, to find out.
6: Well, yeah, I mean, they were they were DJing everywhere. You know, okay. you go to Amsterdam dance event and they'd be like headlining, or you go to Rimini or you go to Ibiza, and you'd see the names, you know, and and they were they were making those records and they were you know getting the big gigs over there, you know, and it, it, you know while they were export while we were exporting house music to some of the festivals and underground, you know, there was still a big, you know, there, there was still your you know it's top forty. These records were top 40 in Europe. Yeah. They weren't top 40 here. I mean, people didn't even know about the real McCoy for years until, you know, finally radio broke that record and they finally put a big push on it. So, you know, everybody's free, never made the radio. Um, you now, a lot of Eurodance dance records never made the, maybe please don't go did. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Made KWS. Radio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. KWS. So, you know, it just, but it took radio programmers to stretch out a little bit. Um, and then, you know, and, and in what markets, you know. So, so yeah, I think that's the reason, you know. But it's funny because half of them live in California now. <laughs> they all <laughs> live in L.A., you know. Yeah, Oakenfold moved to L.A. I think Van Dyke lives over there. It's a, a whole bunch of people, um, you know, moved to L.A. from, from Europe. All
5: right, that's going to put a wrap on part one of our interview with our guest tony zioli stick around because coming up we have another 30 minute block with tony after this brief interlude on the dance 5 fm w-c-o-m-l-p Capitol hill and Carboro. everybody's free feel good
3: everybody Everybody's free to feel good
5: 103.5 FM WCOM LP Chapel Hill Carborough stick around because we've got the second half of our interview with DJ Tony Zioli aka DJ Tony Z we're playing at the Nightlight this Saturday night for simply paradise rhythm is a dancer edition so you're not going to want to miss part two you have no idea where this is going folks so stay tuned it's the dance mega mix on 103.5 FM 103.5 FM WCOMLP Chapel Hill Carborough. It's Hadaway. So that can only mean one more thing. We've got the second part of our interview with DJ Tony Zioli coming right up. So keep your radio locked right here. It's the Dance Mega Mix with Don Flay on 103.5 FM WCOMLP Chapel Hill and
6: Carborough.
5: So I I don't want to take up too much of your time, and I'm so grateful for you uh, sitting down with me today. I Mm -hmm. I just wanted to skip over actually a very interesting piece as it pertains to this show, which is your work at um, the Remix Services in Boston, and your work in basically the the global house community. I want to talk about, so when you moved to New York, it was a total life change and pivot, and you founded a company called NetMix. Um, Tell Mm -hmm. us about what the... The, the initial vision of NetMix was and how, how it had to change.
6: So I started NetMix in Boston in my bedroom at 726 Washington Street in Brookline on the third floor of a rent control walk-up that I lived in after I lived in Coolidge Corner. And this was in Washington Square. And what was happening was I was starting to lose my gigs because I wasn't Euro enough. I didn't, like I said, I didn't speak the language, yeah. languages. Uh, I was Tony Z and I was starting to lose gigs and, and I didn't know where I fit in. I was working at Twitter, et cetera, selling mobile phones. Um, and I was still DJing from time to time and other, you know, play, starting to play more house music and stuff like that. And I had left x because, you know, I didn't see eye to eye, you know, I helped them. This is before, this is before like you gave equity, right? Yes. So I, XMix was a startup in 1990 and MegaMix before that in 1988, right? So these were startups and I didn't get equity in these companies, but I helped build them into gold, global brands. And after seven years of working on and off with them, um, they wouldn't get, you know, Neil Petricone who owned XMix, I asked him for a small piece of equity and he said I was insulting him. And so I said, you know, why am I going to help somebody? You know, so I felt like I had to leave XMix, I was losing my gigs. I wasn't a billboard dance chart reporter anymore. Uh, you know, what am I going to do now? And so I, my father had given me a compact computer, a desktop computer, and I went on AOL, and I was like, well, where's the music? Where's the DJs? And there was no, there were no DJs on AOL at, at the time, and. I said, well, how, how are people going to you know, broadcast over this medium? This is great. This is cool. This is you know, the internet. And two years before I had seen the internet, from uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine had, had introduced me to from, somebody from Harvard University who worked in the IT department, who introduced me to Telnet and sending files over the internet and these kinds of things. And I got curious and the curiosity. And one time I was DJing at the Hub Club, and this guy named Jason, who owned the first web development company in Boston, he came by i said do you have any ideas and i said yeah i do you know i've been wondering where the djs are and i want to broadcast dj mix sets on the internet you know because i guess you know i just i just think it's it's that's what we should do right this is new technology this is the future and so uh i started investigating it and i went to international uh, internet world those used to be big exposition called Internet World. And it would go to different cities and all real audio and Microsoft and Apple, they would all come down and converge and have their big displays and, you know, and all the new like new companies uh, would, you know, display their wares and have, you know, macromedia and all these companies, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Internet World and Real Audio was in its beta. It was they instead of having this big giant, you know, uh, display, they had like a table with a banner. They yep. became a multi-million dollar like you progressive know, a dollar progressive company. networks. They were progressive probably called networks. Yeah, but yep. like mm-hmm. before, right? Yep. So uh real networks. They were called real networks. Well, b- before that they were real, before, they uh, were progressive, progressive because progressive. they
5: were yeah, they were trying yeah. to spread their their message of progressive politics on the internet. That was their initial right. ethos of the company. Yeah.
6: So I went to Internet World just to see like what is real audio and how does it function? So I got down there and this is probably 1994 uh like late 1994 early 95 and i saw a demo of them um broadcasting a baseball game over the internet i was like that's it ding this is this is what i'm going to use so i talked to jason i invested about ten thousand dollars of my own money over the course of a year we built the first version of netmix which is still on the internet internet archives you can see it um there on the wayback machine and you know we had he had to license a real audio server and he had then gotten other clients to use real audio as well. And so I started, you know, my first mix shows, Armand, Oakenfold, Because I was a Billboard Dance Child reporter uh, and I had worked at XMix, mix and I went to the winning Music Conference every year for 13 years straight, I knew everybody. So I started getting some people to submit mixes to me, um, you know, for NetMix. And then, you know, through the course of the year, I had been dating that, that woman who had been living with me and, and that kind of ended badly. And so I just was like, you know what? I gotta get out of here. <laughs> I gotta get out of Boston. This is not for me anymore. I, I, there's a lot bigger things in the world, you know? And I had been going to New York to see Armand um, because I had, man- had co-managed Armand at X-Mix and did all the A&R, you know, A&R coordinating um, for all his remix work and booked him for DJ gigs around the world. So I would go to New York and go to a sound factory bar with Louis Vega and Frankie Knuckles and Barbara Tucker and run into Eric and Todd and the whole crew. So I became, I was starting to become part of the New York scene um, through X-Mix and through my forays I the Winter Music Conference. And I felt like that was the place I had to go. So I, and then I knew a record promoter named Brad LeBeau who's still promoting records today, uh, a company called Promotion. And he and I collaborated and I moved into his offices with Netmix um, for a few years. And then that didn't work out because he couldn't see the distinction between net mix and promotion of promoting records to club DJs, you know, over the internet, he, he would always approach a label and say, I'm going to talk to the label about club promotion. You're going to talk to the label about internet promotion. You're going to sell them on that instead of packaging it and saying, it's one package, pay me X and we'll do this, this and this. And we never coalesced on that idea. He, he resisted it. And unfortunately, know we would have been the mixed cloud of today you know he just didn't he just didn't get it and i ended up and he wasn't the right temperamental person for me to be around and then razorfish came along razorfish was a big company seductive Mm -hmm. was another company and they wanted to acquire netmix and seductive wanted to acquire netmix so i moved into seductive's offices for a while they were the first cd burning company like um yeah. like cd burn like you would yeah. request cd roms right? yeah mm-hmm. cd ROMs, and then um and then i moved into brooklyn music limited in brooklyn with those guys and we raised some money and then some guys from sonic net and a few other matty silver who was a big rave promoter oh yeah they got together and they acquired Netmix in 2000 um you know right at the cusp of well right at the start of the dot fall dot com 1.0 abyss and so we were acquired, but it just never worked out. And it just, it was a, an incredible moment in time for me. I went to, you know, uh, all kinds of parties. I mean, there was NetMix, there was The Womb, there was Groove Tech, there was um, Groove, Groove Radio in LA uh, with Swedish Eagle. Yep. The Womb was in Miami, Groove Tech was in Seattle. And then there was Street Sound, which was out of pseudo networks. And that was all of us at that time in the mid 90s doing what we do. But, you know, this is really the first time I've been able to ha- be interviewed or asked the question in an interview today, you know, 30 years later, uh, what was that like, or 28 years later, or so on and so forth.
5: Y- yeah, I mean, it's it, we've talked about this a little bit offline, but, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Silicon Alley scene of the early and mid-90s in New York is mm-hmm. really inc- incredible. Um, most people don't know about it. Can you just mm-hmm. kind of describe, like, what was the overlap like between the tech world and the dance music world? Were th- were these actually like cool parties that were happening, or were they cool to like a business world, but not cool in like the underground um, scene that you had been a part of uh, in well, Boston and New York?
6: Yeah, the tech scene, especially Pseudo and Street Sound. You know, Pseudo became like where it was at. Sonic Net was one thing. Mm-hmm. sonic net was the apple music of today right yeah they, they uh, had to
5: deal with microsoft i think if i'm not
6: probably mistaken. yeah sonic net was like you know they were they were they were publishing content and playing and had you know playlists and things like that and then there was pseudo which was more of a content production house um they were doing all kinds of things like you know internet television internet radio um so they were they were kind of gritty, like they just because they were startups, they weren't really corporate in the sense that you know what we think of. Like I used to work at Lehman Brothers, that's corporate. Yeah. No, I mean they, they know, were they were yeah. very yeah.
5: countercultural, which which yeah, is yeah,
6: counterculture. Yeah, which is so I th- think pseudo counterculture.
5: Yeah, to me, like that's the thing that I don't think people today understand is that these were like really cultural uh, countercultural programming networks that were appearing on a new medium right. that was totally kind of unregulated and unknown to the mainstream um, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of creative freedom that happened there and you know because of the dot com crash and the speculative um, uh, investing that was made at the time um, you know people look back on that time and say oh you know pets.com it was a bad idea but all these businesses that you're describing were actually really successful models they were just a little bit too early and didn't yeah. have the patience or the or the the muscle behind them to like Stick with it and, and ride out the storm.
6: Here's a distinction: in the '90s, you didn't have user-generated content. That's right. You had to produce the content, mm-hmm. right? So pseudo YouTube is the pseudo networks of today. That's right. Pseudo right? was
5: close was close to doing it, but they didn't quite get there um, when well, they closed the, in
6: 01. Yeah, because there was no user-generated content. You had to hire people to produce the content. You didn't have uh, you didn't have WordPress. Yeah. You didn't have you didn't have Drupal. You didn't have Joomla at the time. Those were, you, you know, there were type, there was typo three, which is an early CMS, but you didn't have content management systems that you could just install. And you didn't have the way to upload mechanisms in AWS for storage yeah. and these kinds of things. It was expensive to do, um, like, you know, unlike today, where, you know, anybody can set up, you know, an internet company in five minutes, connect to AWS, get WordPress. And be publishing, you know, that cost a hundred grand in 1990. Today, it costs like a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs>
3: you know? yeah. yeah, you know, and, and so
6: and,
1: that's
5: yeah. different. And I, I, think you know, for me, the saddest part about all this is that uh, people like you and and you know, like Sonic Net and uh, Pseudo and all that, were producing really interesting content. You guys were content creators, and you know, now today, it's like everyone's a content creator, and everyone agrees that content is king, and there's. 80,000 streaming services that you can subscribe to for their own original content. But all this stuff was being created on the fly then. And because of the technology you described with real networks and others, a lot of it vanished. And we don't really think about that because people like to think that the internet remembers everything, but those files were sitting on a server somewhere and me at home, I couldn't download those files. I had to access them. So when those companies went away and their servers shut off, everything was gone. What kind of content did you have on NetMix that um, you know people might not know about today? Was it mostly just the DJ mixes, or were there other were there other things that were going on there as
6: well? Uh, it was the DJ mixes, and then we were one of the first. I think the first two companies. There was a company called Electric. It was a promotion company, the first music promotion company, internet music promotion company. So it was me and those guys, and we promoted new releases just like you would do today on any you know blog or whatever but we would charge for that promotion and marketing effort and then we would get you know give them feedback as to how many views or listens you know this you know this record got so if you go to the wayback machine and later versions of netmix you can see some of the promoted releases on the homepage so that was the way we would generate revenue was to you know promote new releases and and then also, you,
5: guys, you guys were like an industry resource, like DJs would come to your site and they would see these new releases, right?
6: Yeah, or just the general consumer, you know, okay. would say, "Oh, I'm to mixes." Plus, you know, I can see Captain Hollywood more and more is out now, or Real McCoy is out now, or whatever. You know, whatever label we had deals with Sony, we had deals with BMG, we had deals like Dimitri from Paris, nice. we did uh, Warner Music Group, uh, Atlantic Records. We had deals with a lot of labels, so. You know, they were paying us to promote records. And that was kind of good went full circle after I left promotion, promotion. I was able to raise that. And then all of a sudden came full circle for me and NetMix started to grow. And I started managing artists like Prince QuickMix and DJ Phoenix. Oh wow. And so um I signed DJ Phoenix to a deal with Affected for his record, Do You Love Me. I got a I got his um Led Zeppelin, babe, I'm going to leave you okay. signed to perfecto. Now he couldn't get that signed anywhere. I went to Johnny D at Atlantic. And even though Johnny was a great friend, he just couldn't get it done because I don't know, for whatever reason, they, they couldn't get to plant and page and ask them. And the answer was no, we can't do it. But somehow Oakenfold, I called up Oki on the phone and I was like, I got a record for you. What do you think? And he was like, I love it. He called plant and page. They're like, no problem. He did the Quiver rem- remix. And yeah. The rest is history. So uh, I'm part of some incredible music in terms of the promotion, marketing, and remixing of that music, not from myself, but as a manager, booking yeah. agent, AR and coordinator. You, you were an industry
5: stalwart, as they say, and you, I, your, yeah. name, your name appears in many, many a liner note. Uh,
6: a few. I'm um, most proud of being a, appearing on The Witch Doctor. My name's on the back of the. If you look on the back of the Witch Doctor, Armand calls out everyone you know that, that helped him, and nice. And um, my name is there. And then my name's on two future for you, um, and then some. You know, I did a lot of remix work with uh, booked a lot of remixes, um, but my name's not on those. Like Jimmy Somerville, Heartbeat. Yeah. You know, those are all. It just says our, You know, remix by Armand Vehel, on, it doesn't. You know, he can't thank anybody or give credit on those records, right? Um, Janet but Jackson. We, yeah. Um, yeah,
5: this is amazing. So, uh, just to to you know sign off, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Netmix didn't just disappear and go away. It's it's back, and you've <laughs> yeah. you've re- you've <laughs> revived it and repositioned it as a WordPress yeah. software development company. So, um, I just want to call out, take a moment, and note that Tony and Netmix are the creators of the Radio Station Pro plugin that is actually being used by this radio station, WCOM. And you can go to our new website, wcomfm.org and see it in action. So if you're listening online right now at our site, you're using Tony's software to play this radio feed using his persistent widget uh, player in the bottom of the screen. Um, and you're seeing our program schedule being managed through that. So a big thanks, first of all, for doing this. It's, it's been a godsend for us. How yeah. did this radio station plugin come about and who is it designed for?
6: So, um, when I was doing my, I started Asheville House Music Society when I moved here to Asheville in 2014. And there are two LPFMs in Asheville Asheville FM and 103.7 WPVM. And so I did my mix show on Asheville FM for a while. And they were using the radio station plugin to the show schedule. But I didn't know that at the time. It was created by a woman out of Colorado. Uh, you know, it's a WordPress plugin, and she created it as a free open source plugin. And so once I left uh, doing my mix show on Asheville FM, it was about a year and a half, two years until I got back on the radio in 2018, 2019 on WPVM. And she asked me to help her with the website. And I logged in and found the radio station plugin there that both stations were using um for free and I was like oh this is interesting it was breaking a WordPress template like a divi which I was Mm. trying to use it was it was breaking divi for some reason so I contacted the developer uh, and asked her you know you know this plugin hasn't been updated since 2015 and 2019 what are you doing with it and she said not you know not much I'm um I kind of let it go it's sitting out there you know it had a thousand active installs around the world And, you know, she kind of orphaned it. So uh, as an entrepreneur and someone who started companies and helped other, you know, there are other things in my, in my bio that we haven't even touched touched the service, but, you know, as an entrepreneur for so long and a product developer, someone with a a lot of product development experience, I I immediately saw that this was a plugin that people, that radio stations needed and it needed to be improved, especially the stations that were using it. And so we just got to talking in like a five-minute conversation on Facebook. And she said, do you want to take it over? And I was like, hell yeah. (laughs) I had no plan, no developer. And I found a developer in Australia who had used the plugin by just putting out the word in the WordPress universe because I've been involved in WordPress for 19 years now. And so I know that just like I know DJ culture. And so uh, he responded, said he wanted to be involved. He used the plugin on a friend site in Australia. And so um, I created a new company. We signed a. a I got a contract done um, for him. So I gave him a share. You know, I gave him a share because I realized how valuable that is to give someone something of what you're doing. Not like, you know, not not that I'm bitter or anything. <laughs> yeah, but but
5: but, it, but it's informed your experience, right? And yeah, you, you, like informed right. my
6: experience. I want to. I want to do right by the yeah. people that help create. You know, you want to give a piece of equity because you're not really losing anything. If you, if you make a hundred million dollars, what are you really losing by giving a piece of equity to somebody? Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, back in, in the old days when Neil thought that was a, a you know, a slight of some sort of um, insulting him, he didn't see my value beyond me just sitting in a chair. And I just felt, you know, I can't do that to the people who contribute to, to my work. And that makes I gave equity, to two other guys, um, I had 51 percent. They had 49 percent. But that's the reason why I was able to keep NetMix at 49 percent. I mean, at 51 percent is because yeah. you know we had gotten in an argument, and I was the you know I was a majority owner, so I yeah. was able to yeah, the majority owner. So I was able to shut it down, hold on to it for 20 years. I tried to do a couple of different things with it, but but now what NetMix is is the if you go to NetMix.com, it's a radio station directory. So if you're a pro user of radio station. Uh, for WordPress, then your station is then listed in the netmix.com directory. So I am using netmix.com now for that purpose. And it will then, you know, continue to, as more and more radio station pro users come on, you know, we'll be doing more and more adding them to the radio station directory. And it'd be all WordPress sites using radio station and and doing on the internet radio. Um, And so that's really the synopsis. And and, and, that's amazing.
5: Yeah. I mean, I mean, even just hearing you say that it, it reminds me so much of of even the DJ world where DJs are notoriously uh, territorial of their, their residencies and spaces and pushing other Mm -hmm. DJs away. And it's funny in a place like Chapel Hill, um, that's not the biggest market. It's just obvious that when there are more good DJs and events happening here, it's like a, a rising tide lifts all boats. And that's that's something I've witnessed in the seven years that I've lived here, and I, I feel like the same thing, you know, goes for business. Like if you if you give folks equity and what you're working towards, they're going to give everything they have, and they've got a stake. Yeah, in that.
6: and that's what's happening with AVL HMS here in, in Asheville. You know, I've got seven DJs now. You know, from John Owen and Matthew Francis and P Dub to um, Ray Mack and uh, Jericho Michaels. Uh, you know, and um, all of these guys, I don't, you know, when we get gigs, it's not like I want to, I'm going to play, you know, I've got a seven-year-old and a wife and businesses to run, you know, so they get to play. We all get to play. We all share. We all take our money, put it in the bank and we're saving up for a sound system so we can play some more, you know, That's great. Yep. and, and, you know, it works and we all know that it's not like we all talk about it, not being a business, that it's, it's something that we want to do. It's something that we want to collaborate on. And it's something that we try not to each have each let our egos run, run wild with, you know, but that being said, I still keep it very house music specific and I don't allow other genres within that because I I'm trying to do something specific with the brand. So there's the difference. So other DJs might want to be involved from the techno scene or the drum and bass scene, but they have their crews, you know? So That's the only distinction. You've got to play house music, you know. Wonderful.
5: Tony, thank you so much. So to wrap up, Tony Zioli has been my guest today. He's the founder of NetMix, the developer of the radio station plugin for WordPress that runs this very website, wcomfm.org. He's also the founder of Digital Strategy Works, a digital web agency in Asheville. He's the founder of the Asheville House Music Society that produces all of these wonderful DJ events in Asheville area uh, each year. And he's one of Boston's top Euro DJs of all time, having spun at nightclubs Mm. for over 30 years you can catch tony and myself on saturday march 19th at the nightlight for simply paradise rhythm is a dancer edition with uh, also guest dj magical body of the disco sweat crew uh, and me don play there might also be another special guest named benedetto squalovecchio but that's another story for another day so don't mm-hmm. quote me on that tony thank you so much for joining us and can't wait for the 19th
6: yeah well thank you for having me it's been a pleasure and um, I'm so glad to be able to do it and come out there in Chapel Hill and it'll be a lot of fun.
5: Can't wait. Thanks so much. The
7: bubbles are not reality. It's inside your head. Making you forget where you're from and what's behind. Isn't this suspicious? How the weather my friend getting can return without any more than what you can never send. Oh, yeah. Inside your mind, I'm making you forget where you're from and what's behind Isn't it suspicious how the will is now your friend? And getting return 1,000 more than whatever you could ever send The bubble doesn't make him buy as you that's make the bubble And you better try to remember that it's in your head there's a very tricky thing i all full of hype And it's not easy To try to see The way things are And there always be Making you forget where you're from and what's behind Isn't it suspicious how the will is now your friend And to return one thousand more than whatever you could ever send The bubble doesn't make him buy as you that's make the bubble And you better try to remember That's in your head the Bible is a very tricky thing, i will full of hype And it's not easy to try to see the way things are And there'll always be Live in the Bible,
0: baby, your Bible's not real i living for the go. One for the money, me two for the show. I spend a lot of cash and I buy a new house. Everybody just a watch a while they judge me, me looker. I have everything and nothing is missing. I spend all my time hugging and kissing. Sleeping in the most expensive hotels hanging out with the most beautiful Yeah. And everywhere me go, people just follow me. You know I'm famous and I'm everywhere. You drive around the world in my private jet and I see my face in every magazine. My nickname is Mr. bvip Life has become everything that I see. I got my name up in the stars, famous all over from here to Mars. Living the Bible, baby, your Bible's now.
7: Out of your head, making you forget where you're from and what's behind. Isn't it suspicious how the world is not your friend? Getting the return without any more than what you can never see.